If you take your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of Leviticus. We're in chapter 11 today, and I'm going to, to attempt to talk about the holiness of God. Take off your shoes. To go into God's holiness means that you know what God's like. To even attempt this, you better have a Savior. You better have a Savior if you're going to want to go into God's presence. Because it would destroy us. We could not do it. This passage in, verse, in chapter 11 is talking about the commandments that God has given the priests and the Levites to teach in terms of separation and purity. There's an entire um, series of foods that his people were never to eat. And there were other foods that they were allowed. And you think, well, it might be because it's not healthy or whatever, that God wants best for us. In this case, I would say it's simply God is saying that these things are separate from these things. And my people are to only do things that are, that are set apart. That my people will be different from other people. So I'm sorry these poor Jews never had bacon in their whole lives. Okay? And I thank my God for my bacon. But they were to be separate. It was also to be pure. There were laws in this chapter not just about food but things in which they were to be pure. Things had to be exactly the way they seemed. Nothing could be dark. Nothing could be tricky. Nothing could be one way on the outside and something different on the inside. Because God was teaching these people who had very barely gotten to know him. They had spent hundreds of years under pharaohs, and they did not know God any more than the pharaohs knew God. And God was teaching them about himself. And God was teaching them something about himself that he is holy. And we're going to see that holiness is really two different things. God is completely separate from us. He is in a category unto himself. There is no one. He has no peers. He has nobody in the category with him. He is peerless in that respect. He's completely transcendent and above and different from us in all ways. And he, he's also completely pure. That something about our God has to be learned. We, weren't, we didn't, weren't born knowing this. God has to teach us about himself. And the way that, the, the way that this uh, carnal America treats God is as if he were not holy that they can put him as a dude or a buddy, that they can treat him in the most, in the most uh, not just casual ways, but insulting ways. That God is not one of the boys, and he does not in any way intend to be treated by us that way. Now, it's very interesting that his people, as he works in our hearts, this is something that will be true, of an old Christian that maybe is necessarily not true of a young Christian. The older you are and the more that you've learned from the Lord, I believe the more that you sanctify God in your heart. God is not like you. And you appeal to God for what God would do and not insist that God be what you want him to be. 
I believe that that is an effect. That's the effect of the Holy Spirit working in our lives. I believe that you will see that. And it's one way that I believe you can see the wheat separating from the tares. That over years and years, it's unmistakable that a person who sanctifies God, who trembles at his word, is because God has worked through his spirit, through the salvation of his soul, to purify him and make him revere God. I believe you will revere God in a thousand years more than you revere God now. And then in a million more than you did in a thousand. Because God is so different from us. But hallelujah, our Savior was like us. That when you say what God has done for us, it cannot be summed up. It cannot be put in a bucket. It can't be put in an envelope. It is breathtaking. That he, who he is, who is high and holy, I am the high and holy one, live with the contrite and the poor in spirit. That's who God chooses to be a part of. That he would condescend down to the very depths, even to deal with us, even to look upon us, but to die for us. It's, it's, it's too much to take in. So I want to look at these two verses, verses 44 and verses 45 of chapter 11 in Leviticus. For I am the Lord your God. Ye shall therefore sanctify yourselves, and ye shall be holy, for I am holy. Neither shall you defile yourselves with any manner of creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. For I am the Lord that brings you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. To look at this, I think even a fallen man could look at this and say, how impossible. What, how is this even a commandment that God would command us to be like him? If you think of purity as a, a piece of paper that have no marks on it, and I'm a doodle pad full of marks and tears and rips and burns, and God commands me to be holy, I don't even know what that means. Holy can't, I can't be holy. My life is marked up. My mind is fallen. My heart is, is tied in knots. For me to be like God because he is God is, is something that I can't even put my mind around. But it is a commandment that every one of us are called to. And it is not an impossible a possibility for the ones that God has saved. So I want to unpack this so feebly, so feebly. I chuckled at myself as I was going over my notes this morning. I'm like, oh my goodness, what a miracle this would be if any part of this would be conveyed. Because how can I talk about the holiness of God? How could I even do it? It's so enormous. But I want to start. I'm just going to break down the words for you, and we're just going to use the words as kind of the benchmarks as we go. So if you keep your Bible in your lap, I'm going to try to go as we go. So the first phrase, I am the Lord your God. I started with the idea that God is God. And that's not a, that's not a ridiculous thing. We saw that even in, in Sunday school, that God is God. Elijah said, 
God, you are God. Prove that you're God. And the fire came out and burned not just the sacrifice, but burned the rocks that the sacrifice were on, burned the water that had been poured on top of the sacrifice, and burned the soil that hold the rocks. That God consumed it, vaporized it, because God was showing that he was God. So God is God is not a ridiculous thing to say. God is not the name for God. You can't say God is God like Bill is Bill. God is God means that he is God. The Lord is our God. So you have to now have a concept of even what God means. This, this culture is so far beyond a Christian heritage, so far beyond that, that you would have to go that far back. You would have to say God is God. Now what does God mean? I say, if you're going to say God is God, if that is going to be your statement, I would have to start with God possesses extreme and ultimate and final and authority. That there is no one to appeal to. That God is it. God has complete authority. Not just that he has the right to rule me, but that he rules me. That he that what happens is because God is in authority, he is sovereignly reigning this universe. He's embedded in it. He knows it. He is not leaving it. He's working in it. He has power over all things. That's what it means to be God. It, it means that he's the creator. This is what it said in, in Revelation. As the beasts cry out, holy, holy, all day long with nothing else, it said, for you created all things. And all things derive them, them, their life from you. That you are, you are the paper that the story is written on. There is nothing outside of you. For you to, to stop existing, and all things would stop existing. When Jesus died on the cross, God did not die. Jesus, Jesus died as a man. But if God were to have died the earth would have disappeared. There would have been nothing. All things are held together in the life of God. And that is something that is, that's into the realm of philosophy that you can't have to kind of stretch your brain even to think about. How does it mean that, that, our, that we have an address on a street, in a town, in a state, in a country, but ultimately our address is in the mind of God himself? That, that he is authoritative and he has all supreme power. And that he has, he's beyond the, the creation. He's not in the creation. He is transcendent over the creation, but he's right here with us. That he's as close as your breath, and he's as far as the farthest planet you could ever visit in a spaceship. You can't expand past who God is and where he is and what he is. He is God. So it says, I am the Lord, your God. Now, Lord means master, it means boss. But this word, the Lord, especially, especially in all of the English Bibles, there are two words for Lord, and it's how it's spelled. So you have Lord that's spelled with a capital letter and lowercase letters, Lord, and then you have the, the name Lord, which is all the letters capital. And it, because there's two words that come back from it. So if you're going to say, oh, 
Psalm 8, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic you, is your name in all the earth. You're saying, Lord, which is the covenant name of God. This is the name that God identifies himself with in grace to his people. Yahweh, Jehovah, I am the I am. I am the I am. That's how I will identify myself to you. He is not the I am to his enemies. He's the I am to the people of his name. And that Jehovah name, that, that Yahweh name, it wasn't even pronounced. You went thousands of years, they didn't even remember what vowels went there because you could never utter it. It was a sacred name. It was the name that God said, I will be your God and you will be my people. But when it said, O Lord, our Lord, that just means sovereign one, completely in charge. It's his title. It would be like calling the president, president plus whoever the president is at the time. President is title and then he has a name. God the God, Lord the Lord, the Lord Jehovah is our God. That's what he's saying. For I am the Lord. I am, I am. I am who I am. I am that I am. And I am God. And I am your God. That is amazing. It's amazing. I can't imagine it. If God is the Lord, then he sets the moral standard. He gets to define the terms. He gets to say what's right and what's wrong. And that's why people despise him. That is why there will always be a war. There will always be a war between the son, between the, uh, the, sons, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. There will always be a war. Because the idea that God sets the definitions. God determines what is what. God is, determines who is who. And God determines what is right and what is wrong. And he morally not just, not just sets that as a standard, he judges based upon that standard. That there is a judgment of God based upon that standard. He reminds us through this name that we are in a covenant relationship. And, I, and I'm, I've called the covenant the floor. It's the floor we can walk on. It will never change. The promise that he made you when you came to his son is forever lasting. It does not matter. As you as a Christian person realize that you are worse than you thought you were. Every day your sins become more and more apparent. As we become cleaner in our actual lives, in our minds and in our hearts we recognize more and more that we are not clean. But in that way, the floor is forever. All of our sins have been taken away. We are in covenant with God. He's not just our Lord. He's not just our maker. He is our father and our husband and our friend. That is a promise. Not made to you for your sake. Not because you were good enough, but because of who Jesus Christ is. And anyone bound to Jesus Christ... Jesus invites you, if you are bound to him, you are treated in a covenant relationship. And now there is possibility, that there is possibility that I can obey, be holy as I am holy. See, the, it, there's blessings in the covenant. If you remember uh, the end of Deuteronomy 29, 30, 31, there's blessings, blessings, blessings. I will bless you in the city, I'll bless you in the country, I'll bless you in the, 
in your bread basket. I'll bless you, bless you, bless you. And there are curses for breaking this covenant. The contract, the covenant, is now sealed because the covenant between God and men is sealed in Jesus. So it's not me who will break it. If it were between God and Brian, I promise, I would not go to heaven. The contract would be broken because I would break it. But the contract between God and man was ratified in Christ Jesus' blood. For that reason, it's standing. And there is blessing, only blessing. The curses have been taken away on the cross. The curses for breaking God's contract is taken away from us. We only have the blessing of yea and amen and because of what Christ did. And that contract, that covenant, that floor that will not cave allows me to now be able to follow God in his person. Now, I can never be a clean sheet of paper, except that what happened on the cross is that Christ replaced me with himself. I can't say I'm not was just dressed up or cleaned off or scraped off or, or, or erased. That's not what happened to me. My life was replaced by Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is flawless and impeccable and perfect in God's sight. Perfect. As perfect as God himself. So when, when Isaiah wrote about Cyrus, and he said, I gave you a name, and you don't even know me. I call you Cyrus hundreds of years before you're ever born, and you don't even know who I am. And I will let you ride like a lawnmower over all of the nations. And you will assume ultimate power because I want you to know that I am who I am. You need to know who I am. I did this for you, even though you don't know me, even though you haven't sliced I do who I am. I am the Lord and there is none like me. None like me. So since I am the Lord your God, therefore sanctify yourselves and be holy. Do you see it? It starts with the word for. Because I am the Lord your God, because I am, therefore you shall therefore sanctify yourselves. Now, you're going to see the word holy all over the place. Sanctify means be holy. It means separate yourself. So separate yourself. You're to separate yourself from anything impure or unholy. Anything that you breathe the poisonous gases that you breathe just by living in this world, you separate yourself from that. You do not smirk at the jokes. You don't secretly enjoy something. You do not, even for a moment, in the back of your mind, with nobody seeing, in any way be dark or dirty. You are to be clean in my sight, continuously living in front of God. Because I am holy, you are to be holy. That covenant that bound us together is a forever covenant. It is a wedding ring that will never tarnish. I do not know how many tarnished wedding rings there are in this world, but this wedding ring will never tarnish. That covenant is forever. And because I am holy, therefore, and because I am the Lord your God, therefore, you sanctify yourselves. Now, there's decision there because I have to say, based on the fact of who you are, I will be who you say I am to be. 
You get to determine what it is, and I need to, I need to study to show myself approved so that I know what you expect of me. I have to dig. I have to study. I have to read my Bible. It cannot be something that I just know. I have to read. I have to be in front of your face. I am standing, presenting myself to you moment by moment by moment. Not just day by day, morning by morning. Every, every breath and every exhale of breath, I'm standing in front of God as his. And I do not want to dirty his name. I don't want to embarrass him and make him less in other people's eyes. For since I am the Lord your God, therefore. So not only am I to remove myself from impurity, I have to, I have to think in a way that God approves of. In the way that God lives his life, I'm to live my life. Well, welcome to a recipe for failure. I just want to tell you. But you know something? I do not believe that this is to be flawless perfection because it's not that way. It doesn't work that way. There's not a New Testament writer that doesn't agree that you're going to sin all the time. But you're, the, the bent of your heart is, I wish to serve God and do right. I want to behave in a way that would bring honor to him, not get what I want, not make sure that I go to heaven and not go to hell. It's not keeping enough points in my bank account. It has nothing to do with that. All of your sins were taken away on the cross. For that reason, I want to please God. There is something in me that wants to respond to the God who says, be like me. So sanctify yourselves as something I do, and I'm going to fall on my face. And you have to, you have to realize if you're going to fall on your face, the people will sin against you as well. They're going to disappoint you. The ones that you thought you trusted, you have to realize that there is something in a Christian's heart that knows when you have another brother. You know. You can recognize each other. And you know that you're going to be sinned against, but something happens in a sinner that is sanctified. A sanctified sinner is different from another sinner. A sanctified sinner will, first of all, feel that sin instantly. When I offend you, I'm not oblivious always to it. it, it will, the Holy Spirit will tell me, and then we come to each other and we repair. We ask forgiveness. That's something that, a, that an unrepentant sinner would never do. That's something that a repentant sinner would do. And over the entire course of your life, it's marked as following God, hard after him, following him. We're striving. We want the, God's morality to be our morality. We want his thoughts to be our thoughts, his actions to be our actions, his character to be our character. And this is what the Holy Spirit's job in you is. The Holy Spirit in you, God in you, is to turn your character into the character of the flawless Lord Jesus. That's what he's doing. Your personality gets to stay your personality. Okay? So if you're funny, you'll be funny forever. And you might actually get real funny. Like, really? If you think you're funny, maybe you'll get better before you start being funny forever. It's that idea that your personality is your person. God does not annihilate me. He turns my character into the character of Christ. 
But I tell you, you have to go to the cross over and over and over again if you want that. I have to die to the, to the person that I've turned myself into. And that has to be a slow, agonizing death. And if you, in the first century, if Jesus said, you take up my cross and follow me, no one said, hmm, I wonder what he means by that. There's not a person that didn't see someone taking a cross up to their hill to where they could be nailed to it. It means that the things about my character that is displeasing to God, I give away. I give up. And I take every thought captive, every thought, and say, what does God think about this? What does God think about this? All of us want legalism in in some ways because it's easier. I've had teenagers say, what should I listen to? Can I listen to this and not this? Can I do this? Can I get a tattoo? And I'm like, whatever. Can I get a bone up my nose? Somebody thanked me once because I took him to a store that had the bones that he was looking for so he could put a bone up. I'm not kidding. Bone up his nose. He was like, that was such a nice thing you did. I'm like, I didn't know. Nice bone. I don't give lists. I just say, you show everything to Jesus. Show everything. Think about what you're going to do. Decide. And then show it to Jesus. He'll tell you. He'll say, is this, is this suitable? Is it not suitable? It's what I wear or what I do or what I say or how I act or what I laugh at or what I watch or what I think about. All of those things is who I am. And they have to be one at a time captured and taken to Christ. And then he determines for you what is yours. We are to be holy people. That means separate, set apart completely for his service. And God says, for I am holy. So here is where I'm going to try my best. To what in the world does that mean? Because You be holy, sanctify yourself, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. God is and I have to, there's no way I can do this. I have to use the same terms that people for hundreds and hundreds of years have used as they think about God. These terms of theology to where you're thinking about God and you're discoursing and you're talking and you're, 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 you're explaining to each other what does it mean by God. So theology is a beautiful study. It's the, it's the, it's the unifier of the university. All universities were universities because of the thing that theology was the was that corner thing or that central part that all of the spokes went into. So what do I know about God? What do we know about the true God? And how do we conduct ourselves because of what we know about God? Everything in life, no matter what it is, I don't care what you do for a living. I don't care what you study, what you enjoy, what you are thrilled at. Everything is colored by your view of God. So most of the time when we talk about God, the only way we can talk about God is to use what he's not. You have to use negatives. You have to say God is not this and God is not that. So when you look at it, and I just wrote down a couple. I didn't in any way go through my systematic book. I simply just took a few. The first one I wrote down, he's infinite. That means he's not finite. He has no boundaries. He's not limited in any way. He's infinite. He's not finite. He is not bound the way we're bound. He is, he's outside of time. All of his time is present tense. 
He's looking at the past the same as he's looking at the present, the same as he's looking in the future. And, and the New Testament epistles are saying that we are in Christ, in Christ in heaven right now. That in God's mind, it's the same as done because he's looking at the past, the present, and the future all together at the same time. It's not a sequence of events that God goes through Tuesday before he goes through Wednesday. He doesn't do that. The second one we wrote down is he's immutable. Mutable means like mutation. He changes. He's immutable. He doesn't change. He's exactly who he is. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change. And because of that, do you understand that that's why that the covenant doesn't change? The covenant is a promise in God's character bound by God's person. And since God doesn't change who he is, if God were to change, he'd have to stop being God. He can't change. He's who exactly he is. So he, he doesn't, he, there's no in any way impermanence to him. He is permanent. Now, I teach science in high school, and science just means what we know, what we understand, right? So you don't know banjo unless you can pull out your banjo and pick me a tune. Then I'll tell you you know banjo. If you say, well, I've never played golf, but I know all of the, that's silly, okay? There's no golf appreciation. Either play golf or don't. It's not a matter of knowing something. So science is what we know and understand. If you understand enough about microwaves to sell me an oven, then you understand something. All right? That's, that's, but God is not just science. He's omniscient. That idea of knowing is omni. He completely knows. He doesn't just know the things that have happened, like, in, like a big Google or is happening because he's got his eyes open. He knows everything that will happen or could happen. He knows the end of every road that will be taken and every road that will not be taken. David said, will these people turn me in? And God said, yeah, they'll turn you in. So David left that town and they never turned him in. Think about it. God didn't know what was going to happen. God knew what would happen if he were to take any road in his life. That means God can be the guide. God is the one that's guiding us. God is not just watching you flop. He's doing things in your life. He's omni and he's omnipotent. So when I say a, a piano hanging from a rope over some, I always wondered why the cartoons always had a piano hanging from a rope. Why would you hang a piano from a rope? But there was always a piano falling on someone's head. It has potential. But he's omnipotent. He can do all things. He can do as he is. So not only do we say things that God is not, like negatives, and things that are all, like omnis, but there are a couple words that we just had to add to the vocabulary because and God's the only one that gets this. The one that I wrote down is eternal. He's eternal. It's not just that he, he's not looking at present or past or future. He is Timeless. He's like when you are looking at your book and you know the beginning of the book and the middle of the book and the end of the book. He's outside of your book, but he's put himself into the book. That is what is so amazing about God. God is not a philosophy. God is a person that is different from us. God was not created. This is from Exodus 3. God said to Moses, I am that I am. 
I am. That's present tense always, I am. He's never created. In John 1, when we looked at John 1, as we went through John, in the beginning was the Word. That means at the very beginning, Jesus was already wasing already. He was in, he was in progress was during the time that something started. That, that means he was always there. There isn't no start to God. He wasn't created. And the other one that we had to make up is, and we just had to make it as a, as a link. He's self-existent. He has life in himself. He doesn't derive his life from anything else. He himself has life. And that's what he was telling Cyrus. Cyrus, I'm going to give you everything. And you are going to be the one that says my people can come back to their land. And you're going to supply them the money to build a temple again. I'm going to do that. Because I have life in myself. And you don't even know who I am. Now, John takes this up as a strong theme. We've seen this repeatedly. So John 1, 4, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. That means Jesus had life in himself. And he actually says it directly in chapter 5. For as the Father hath life in himself, so is he given to the Son to have life in himself. It's not something that he is writing out in someone else's story. You are not a... You are not a co-star or guest star in my story. God is life in himself. He's not part of somebody else's story. And then we just saw last chapter, in chapter 6, right at the end, he said, Verily I say to you, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, we've talked about how horrific that is, you have no life in you. Your very life is derived from the life that Jesus has. Your very life is a a derivative. So, Acts, when Paul was talking to the people in Mars Hill, he said, all of us have our being, we live and move and have our being in God. That that's who we are, that's where we are. Now, when I talk about holiness, what does Jesus mean? Jesus called, when we read together from John 17, and I'm sorry I broke it up. It was long, wasn't it? Well, did you realize I broke it up? You only had about half of that passage. I broke it up into little snippets, okay, and then put it all together. It was like a Franken chapter. I snipped it all together because I wanted you to see how Jesus saw God. Jesus called God holy. Holy Father is what Jesus said. Now, now you have to stop just for a minute. I can call God holy. Holy Father, I've called him Holy Father in my prayers before. Absolutely have. But that's nothing for me to say because when I'm saying, God, you're not like me, you're not like me at all. You are flawless. You're clean as you can be and you're separate and you're trans, you, you're above me in all ways. But Jesus Christ called him holy. Now that's interesting to me because if I look and say Jesus Christ is perfectly pure, he never sinned at all then the cleanness part of his holiness, he's just as as holy as as God. And God is not in any way transcendent above him. So back when we see John 1.1, it said, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And when you go back into the Greek, all the Word is is God, Jesus was, the Word was towards God. Towards him meaning he looked directly in his face. He looked directly in his face. 
that's amazing. No one has looked into the face of God. Jesus looked into his very face and called him holy. That means there's something about God that Jesus enjoyed, that Jesus reveled in, that Jesus knew about. That you are to be, you, Jesus, when he was telling us to, to, to pray, said, this is how to pray. Our God, who art in heaven, holy be your name. May your name be hallowed. May your name be holified, whatever holified means. I think it means hallowed. Okay? May your name be what it actually is. May what represents you, your name that represents you, may I know what that means. So we're to call him holy. Jesus called him holy. The passage that I would have taken you to if I not, didn't do the Isaiah is at the beginning of Isaiah 6. If you're going to say holy, 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 where is that in the Bible? It's in Isaiah 6, and it's in chapter 4 of Revelation. That's holy, holy, holy. This is chapter 6, first, first five verses. This is Isaiah. In the year the king Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphs. Each of them had six wings, and twain covered his face. Twain covered his feet, and twain did he fly. And one cried to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the whole house was filled with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me. I'm undone, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Immediately, the king died, and Isaiah saw the true king. He went into the temple and saw God in the temple. And immediately, he was struck with fear. The idea of undone means he was, a, he was disintegrating. He was breaking apart at his very seams. He couldn't stand it. He was just falling to pieces. And he said, I'm undone. I have looked upon God and I'm unholy. Now, my question to myself, why am I not struck dead? I have gone into the very presence of God, taking the blood of Jesus Christ with me. I've gone into God's very presence, knowing who I'm talking to, knowing that I'm talking to God, and I come directly to God freely and boldly, invited to come. Isaiah the prophet, who was cut in half on his death, who did nothing but preach the gospel and lead people to righteousness, was falling to pieces when he saw God. And we will see God face to face. Why? Because we have what that prophet did not have. When Jesus Christ saved us, he gave us something that allows me to go into God's presence and not be undone. He gives me his own holiness. So when I say Jesus is righteous, I mean that every angle lines up perfectly with God's character, perfectly. That there's no, no weirdness, there's no wobbles, no distortions. Jesus and God are the same. And he gave me that. He gave you that upon your trusting of his son. He gave it to you. And when you approach God, you approach God with freedom and boldness. Because in God's mind, you are as he is. You are not as that sinner who still knows your sin. He doesn't know your sin. 
He allows you in and calls you and welcomes you as a child because you have the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. This is Romans 3. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is made by faith in Jesus Christ. Your very person has all the angles lined up perfectly with God. God does not see anything different in you than he sees in his son because he's looking at his son. Your savior is representing you before your God. And you are answered as though you were him. That is amazing. Romans 4, but to him that works not, but believes on him that justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Your trust in Jesus Christ, your cling to Jesus Christ is the same as being right with God. And you can look into the very face of God. And to look upon the face of God and not fall into a trillion pieces, not falling into atoms, you would just disintegrate into atoms. But to, to actually be able to see his face, Moses said, show me your glory. Show me your glory. And God said, I'm sorry, you look at my face, you'll die. I'll put you in the cleft of a rock and I'll hold you and cover you with my hand and you can look at the back of my head as I pass by. And Moses looked at the back of God's back and his face glowed from looking at the glory from his back. And you will look like Jesus Christ, proton theon. You will look directly into the face of God. You will look directly into the face of God and not be afraid, but be welcomed. That, that just makes me, it makes me tremble. Do you understand that a greater view of God's glory does something in our life of a Christian? If I know who, that God is holier than I think he is, then what happens is that I have a greater view of my sin. That's the first thing that happens. I have a greater view of my sin. Well, is that not bad news? If I, the closer I get to the light, the more I see the imperfections of myself. I see myself as sin more and more as I look, go closer into God's holiness. But that's not what it does. It, it first of all does it, I suppose, because I have a deeper mourning. I mourn for my sin. When I see it in me, I hate it more and more and more. But that mourning turns to joy. Joy, that mourning turns into dancing because I say, thank God I've got a Savior. That, that, that gulf that was so, it, so huge between God and me. Jesus came the whole way, and he died for me, and he gave me his righteousness. So when I see God's holiness, and I see the dirtiness of my hands, and I see that I am not like him, that's so strange because I'm so much cleaner than I used to be. It's so strange that a, that a Christian gets cleaner and cleaner and cleaner and sees himself as Oh, I'm so bad. But do you know something else? At the same time that you see yourself as more sinful, you have more joy. The joy that comes from the fact that you have a Savior is radiant from your face. That joy, the, the joy of God's face that you can see by faith in the face of Jesus Christ gives you joy in your life. So, a, so I know that an older saint, I know that a saint that's lived with the Lord for ages, is more likely to say, I want Jesus only. Just give me Jesus. 
I want to, Jesus is my only hope. I'm not going to try to clean up my life. I'm not going to try to keep my nose clean. But it's remarkable that that person's life is cleaner. But they, they're fallen and they, there will be one day that I will leave my sin and it will be forever. I will have nothing but joy unspeakable and full of glory. This is Colossians. If you've been risen with Christ, set your thing, heart on things above. Set your affections on things above, not things on the earth. For you are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ is who is our life shall appear, then you will appear. Do you see it? You are in Christ. You enjoy it because of in Christ, your joy gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, even though you know yourself to be sinner more and more. Only then can I take you to Romans 12. I kind of imagine that this is where you thought I was going to go. Present yourselves a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That is, that's possible because every waking moment as I treasure my Savior, my life is to be yours, God. I give my life to you. And that is a holiness that is acceptable to God and is our reasonable service. Praise his name. Amen.